Welcome and thanks for joining us. My name is Sam Anwar Sesha, Director of the Museum of Colour and your host for this series, My Words Donations. As part of the My Words exhibition at the Museum of Colour, we have invited a number of poets to donate objects to our digital collection. These are items that have a real significance to them and their creative journeys. This series is a chance to hear the stories behind those donations. And coming up, we'll be talking to Malaika Booker. Hi, my name is Malaika Booker. I'm a writer. I write primarily poetry, but I also do theatre and I'm a live art practitioner. And I teach workshops as well as mentor people, poets and writers. And I'm co-founder of Malaika's Poetry Kitchen, a writer's collective. Okay, so Malaika, welcome. How would you describe your work? And when I say your work, I know you do more than my poetry, but how would you describe your poetry? So I think my work and my poetry is um, informed by me being from the Caribbean diaspora. My mother's Grenadian, my dad's Guyanese. And it really is looking at the impact of plantocracy on all of us, on people who are residents in the diaspora, in the home region, and also the impact of us traveling to the diaspora. So it looks at that and it really dissects gender, masculinity, place, migration, carnival, all the things that we are, that we've bought with us and that have shaped us. And it also is informed by me being a child of two parents who came over and would be called the Windrush generation who met here. Can you say for listeners your understanding of plantocracy and how it feeds into your work? Because not everybody knows. So plantocracy originated with a term that the ruling class in the Caribbean, in so-called West Indies, as it was known, called themselves. They were the ruling class. They were the planters. They were the people who, who owned the plantation. They were the dominant class, especially in the Caribbean. And so legacies of plantocracy is the government or a governorship or a system derived from slave owners or plantation owners or owners of the enslaved. And so my family, particularly in Grenada, in St. Mark's, in Victoria, where they were set free, they were given land, but they're on the land. The land that is there is the land that was a part of a bigger estate, either planting cane or planting rice. And so in terms of my work, what I'm trying to investigate or to interrogate are if, if that's how we ruled, if that's the laws, if that's the system that we were dominated by, what's the impact of us? What's the impact of being on a place where you, you work to death? What's the impact of being on a place where women were regarded in a certain way? And so some of those attitudes and prejudices against the woman's black woman's body or black male body of aggression, of laziness, which are really quite radically opposed to the reality of someone being worked to death on a place being seen as lazy. But the impact of plantocracy, particularly in Britain, how is that part of our heritage or how is that impacted on us? So if when someone is killed in police custody, the, the language that's used to describe the aggression, so-called aggression, you can mirror that right back to plantocracy. 
to, to the language used by the ruling class to speak about the majority of people who were doing the work for them. Or the laws that are still in the Caribbean, some of the laws are still from that plantocracy class. Or the buildings that were built, the plantation houses, the way the houses were built on the estate, we can see still see the legacies of that today. Or people who have never moved or never left that state, that region, that parish, even the whole terms of parishes, all of that. So that's what my work kind of explores. You know, even the Windrush exodus, that was shaped by no work, by a labor force who had been a free labor force, now wanting, you know, money. It, it was shaped by all of that and people being called to England. So that's where my work is, the impact of plantocracy on gender, on cultural norms, on religion in terms of the King James Bible, Christianity, and all of that. How does that play up for us today as well? Okay, thank you. When did you know yourself to be a poet? I didn't really know myself to be a poet. I'm primarily a reader, actually. So I love to read. I was the child who was underneath the bed reading, the person who still would curl up with a good book. I would take out 12 books a week at the library and read. Reading just created this world for me. I would read anything and everything, fiction, nonfiction, uh, one of my favorite books that I made my uncle buy for me was The History of Childhood, looking at when childhood was formed when I was about 14 or 15. But one of the things that struck me about all that reading and all that work is that I was really represented in it. The stories that I was being told at home when I closed the front door were not anywhere. I grew up in Guyana from a baby until 11 when I came back to England. And I was influenced by Paul Kings Douglas and Louise Bennett. I would hear them on the radio telling stories and reading their work. So coming from that kind of representation to Britain where there wasn't that kind of thing, I think those things had an influence on me. But I think it was long after I was writing that I felt even any confidence to say I was a poet. I was dabbling in this stuff, I kept saying. That's really interesting. Thank you. We've asked you to donate two items and a poem. But before we get to talking about those, you're donating to a museum. So it'd be really interesting to know how you feel about museums. Do you have a relationship with museums? And what does it feel like to now be in one? I'm fascinated. I find museums fascinating. I studied anthropology at university in my undergrad, and I'm really interested in cultures and people. I'm really interested in these curated spaces and what we curate and how we tell the stories of the past and how that helps to shape us. You know, I've been working on a poem called The Museum and I've just had some work that I did for English Heritage going to one of those heritage houses. And for me, what is really interesting about museums or museum spaces is the fact that our artifacts are curated for us and sometimes are lost in there. And sometimes the story is told as someone who writes around the impact of plantocracy, the museum space is almost like an exclusive Noah's Ark where a curator gets to decide what enters the space and how that space is spoken about. And most of the curating and most of the collection happened during the time that the Caribbean was being formed, you know, or during the time of intense colonialism. 
So it's a very interesting space for me, especially around this time when there are fascinating conversations around decolonization and what that would mean. And also especially living through years of having Nigeria, (laughs) Greece, whichever country it is, asking back for the things that were taken from them. And then thinking about, to me, one of the most interesting kind of what I call a museum space, but also a tomb and a graveyard and a kind of holding of culture, the Egyptian tombs and how those were raided. So I can go on for ages. So museums are really fascinating spaces. Also in terms of as a poet, the sound in those, the quality of sound, the stories that I've done a lot of stuff we have written from artifacts or photographs that are there with no labels where, you know, we as people who are for Caribbean heritage are looking at this picture, but also as writers and artists are trying to unlock and excavate a story from there. With all that in mind, what does it feel like to be in a museum? Because you are going to be in Museum of Colour. It's really exciting to be curated into a space (laughs) as a living embodied person as well, you know, because museums are a lot of dead folks. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it's really, really fascinating. And also with the cohort and with the people peer group that I'm going to be with, it's quite a privilege. It says something to be interrogated about where I am in my writing and what I'm doing as a writer who writes culture. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. Exciting. Yeah, we're excited. We're absolutely excited because future generations will know you. And it's exciting to be on this journey with you all. There's something I always think about, and I think writers think about or artists think about in terms of legacy, because a lot of the legacy, especially when you grew up in the Caribbean, my mother's generation, my grandmother's generation, there was a gap in terms of legacy because there was no education of where people were from. So it was really the folk tales and the rituals that continued that told you who you were. And so it's really profoundly overwhelming and emotional that I'm trying to curate and write legacy and write ourselves into for future generations. And then that I'm going to be in the museum as well, you know, and also that we are curating our own legacy. That's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And telling your own stories. I suppose one of the things about building the museum in the way that we are doing it is inviting the artist to talk about themselves and who they are and what they do and why they do what they do and stories from those journeys, you know, attached to your donations and so forth. And also some of the people who have informed you, Louise Bennett, has come up more than once. And that is wonderful. And they also then get to be part of this continuing story, which is exciting. So let's look at your first donation. What is it? What does it mean to you? And why do you want to share it? So my first donation is a conch shell. And I came to England at 11 and grew up with my aunt. And my aunt always had a conch shell in her bedroom. And what she said about that conch shell is that um, anytime she felt homesick, she would put it to her ear so she could hear the sea. And then when I went to Grenada, I understood totally what she was talking about. The sea is everywhere. It's this island, so you can't get away from the sound of the sea. Actually, when you leave, it's like a deafening silence, right? And so growing up with that all your life and then living in Brixton, it's something different. But as I have written... 
I feel like our whole legacy is shaped by that middle passage in the sea. And that notion of home that she's talking to from Grenada is the notion of a bigger exodus. And so that shell, this is not the same shell, but I remember like thinking, where has that shell gone? And asking a friend when she went to Turk and Caicos in Jamaica to please bring me back one of those so that I could have it on my bookshelf and on my desk to understand that the sea shapes us. The sea shaped, especially the diasporic community. I'm a living descendant of someone who survived, a survivor who survived the Middle Passage and generations who survived the terrorism on the plantation. I'm living proof of that. And there's something about the shape of that shell that also reminds me of the woman's private part, that reminds me of something that gives life, that gives birth, and about the women, the ferocity of the women that I come from and the women that I give voice to in my writing, the feistiness of this, the tallowness of them, the braggadocious way of them and the complicated histories that we have. So I think that's why, you know, the shell, as I was looking at it, I thought it's become bigger than what my aunt's saying. It so looms over everything I do. So that's why I brought that in. Beautiful. Thank you. Love the tallowness of us. So let's talk about your second donation. What is it? What does it mean to you? And why do you want to share it? So my second donation is a kind of like worn out family picture of me in Harry Jacobs studio in Brixton. Um, So my mom and dad met and they married and then they decided that because of the racism in the 70s, I was born in 1970, they decided they did not want to bring a child up in Britain. They did not want a child to be subjected to that kind of racism. And so they went to Guyana. My mom's Grenadian, but they went to Guyana, which is my dad's home place. And also my dad wanted to use his education back in that space and bring that back to Guyana. And so that's me as a little girl just before I traveled. And so it's really hilarious to me that I'm in there with a little flower pot and that I came back to Brixton again and lived in Brixton until at least six years ago. So it just represents that journey and that picture placing me in an era, an era that I interrogate and write about, but an era that shaped me and that shaped so much people who make up the Caribbean British. But also, you know, whenever people talk about or look at gathering artifacts from the Windrush generation, the first thing they look at is the pictures from this studio. Harry Jacobs is a photographer. When people came over, they wanted to send pictures to their relatives. And so he had a studio and literally every one of my mother's friend's house that you went into or every most of my mom's family's homes in the Caribbean have a picture from Harry Jacobs. It says Harry Jacobs Studio at the bottom. And it had different things. It had different props as well that people took those pictures with. So people would go there to take those pictures. So those pictures coin an era. You know, you would see someone standing next to the basket or my picture is me sitting in a wicker chair. And he had like a vase or basket with flowers. Or you'd see it's the same props redone in different ways. But you would see people who had done their marriages went there to get their pictures taken. And as my parents did as well, we've got this baby, you know, so we want this picture to be taken of this baby so that it can be sent to the grandparents in Guyana and Grenada. And also so that it can be put up in our house. It's kind of like really on a brown cardboard with the name of his studio 
But I'm telling you, I think literally, and I don't know if it's a South London thing because our family were all in Brixton. I remember an artist called Barbie Ashante had an exhibition of Harry Jacobs kind of pictures. And that's when I realized that these pictures that my mom had of our wedding, of my aunts, just captured the era, the, the fashion, the people very well. Thank you. That's wonderful. So Malaika, your third donation is a poem. Yes. So my third donation is a poem called My Mother's Blues, and it's published in a collection called Pepper Seed. And I'm donating it because, well, for several reasons, really. One, it was one of the hardest poems to write. Um, I work with Kwame Dawes, who's my editor, and I worked with Jeremy Pointing of People Tree Press. And this poem kept being rejected and pushed out. And I knew it was important because when I would perform it, when I would read it, I try out poems in front of audiences to see if they work. People would come up to me and say, this is my mother. No, this is my mother. No, how did you get this? This is my mother. So I knew it was an important poem. But the thing is, I found it hard to find the shape of it for the, from the page. And so it's one of the last poems to really go in the book. And it's everyone's popular poem. The other reason I write it is because my mom suffered a stroke. And there's an absence because of some of the side effects of that stroke. And she loved this poem, but also it's a tribute to her because a part of her is not here because of dementia. And so there's an absence. I don't. I realized just how much my writing has been to make my mother proud. And also I realized that if I'm going to be in a museum, then Clara Charles Booker Boyce has to be in a museum with me. Brilliant. So the poem is called My Mother's Blues. My mother knows pain, a sorrowful gospel type of pain, a slowly losing our eyesight eye drops every night pain, a headache worrying for her children overseas, praying for their safety pain, a stare through each night eyes blackening, hope they're all right pain. Yeah, my mother knows pain. My children don't call. Do they still love me? Pain. A worrisome dying gray hair, black, children too far away. Pain. I will my daughter ever have children? She's 38 years now. Pain. Uh, your womb is becoming stone sermon for her only girl on her birthday. Pain. Yeah, my mother knows pain. So what did I do wrong bringing them up? Pain. And my son has gone astray. Someone put Obi on him. So I have to pray real hard, pain. And look how so-and-so children do so well. I wish mine were like that, pain. Yeah, my mother knows pain. It's the house now empty, no one to cook for pain. And I can't let go, have to let go, pain. It's a let me tell you how to bury me, pain. I want a plain box, no fancy coffin, or I'll come back and haunt you, pain. And don't have no big set of people coming around calling it awake, pain. It's a let me tell you who will get what after I'm gone so you don't fight, pain. It's a don't worry, I'll go soon be dead and gone and then you go miss me, pain. Yes, my mother knows pain. Thank you to Malika Booker for being part of our exhibition and donating to the Museum of Colour. 
To view the donations photographed by Sharon Wallace and the portraits by Derek Akembo, head to www.museumofcolour.org.uk where you can explore the rest of the My Words exhibition and discover our growing digital collection. My Words Donations is presented by me, Samuel Sesha, and is produced by Stella Sabin for the Museum of Colour. Further episodes of this series are available across all podcast platforms where you can also listen to our previous project, Respect Duke. The music you have heard in this series is by the fabulous Randolph Matthews. You can listen to more of his work at www.randolphmatthews.com. My Words is supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Arts Council England and the Foyle Foundation. Museum of Colour is incubated at People's Palace Projects, based at Queen Mary University, London. Thank you for listening. <laughs>